The saints in the New Testament, you know, they were together as one. And that's what I found from the saints in Liverpool. They were together with me. And they lifted me up when I was completely down and had to be at one point hospitalised because I was just so, so depressed. And they came and visited me in hospital. They prayed with me and they encouraged me. And uh, just all that practical support is maybe underrated at times. Without that practical support, I knew that I wouldn't be here. Welcome to Testimony, an encouraging look at how God works in people's lives. I'm very pleased to introduce my latest interviewee, Kerry Robinson. You're a little bit nervous, Kerry, is that right? Just a little bit, Dan, just a little bit, but it's good to be here. Well, thank you for coming on. Let's start with the first question I always ask. What was your home life like and what, if any, part did Christianity play? From my accent, you'll probably be able to tell that I'm from Northern Ireland. I grew up in a small town called Whitehead. It's a little town, a little fishing village, really. And everyone knows everyone else's business. So you couldn't go down the street without someone saying to your parent, oh, I so saw your Kerry going down the street and she was doing this, that and the other. And you're like, couldn't get away with anything. And so I was brought up by my mum and dad. And I had a brother as well called David. I must say from the start, I grew up in a very loving home, didn't lack anything. Money was scarce in our home. Um, my dad was a welder and my mum was a homemaker. And we didn't have that much money, but I never lacked for anything. I must just say that growing up, there were issues in the family, most mostly alcohol related. Both my mum and dad drank quite heavily. And there was domestic violence in the home as well. But never stopped me from feeling love from a family at all but there were issues in regards to church life I didn't come from a family that practiced any kind of Christianity although my granddad did take us to Sunday school when I was very little but I didn't really have any practicing faith while growing up with my family it wasn't something that we're interested in to be honest was it difficult growing up in, in that environment where there was a lot of alcohol, a lot of domestic violence? Yes, it was. It was very difficult. Um, I still have bits of trauma today that I try and deal with um, just from that. You know, it, it was it was difficult growing up, you know. And the council estate you were brought up on probably didn't help. No, so I was brought up on a council estate. Um, if anyone knows Whitehead, it's in the census, it was 99.8% Protestant. And there was a lot of um, uh, uh, paramilitary um, influence around the estate. Um, and that kind of was like my bringing up, you know, my dad was in the Orange Order and we were brought up to think that 
wasn't was the way forward, you know. And so you were taken along to the local Sunday school on the bus. What sort of age was that when you started? So there was a bus that came from the Gospel Hall. It went round the estate every Wednesday evening. And me and my brother, uh, being terrorways that we were, my mum just wanted to be rid of us. She was like, get on that bus and go to Sunday school, get out of my, get out of the house for an hour and give my head peace. Probably from the age of about eight years old, uh, I got on that bus and I went to Sunday school in the Gospel Hall. I Once I got to about 10 or 11, that's when I stopped going. I uh, wasn't interested anymore. I became too mature or old for Sunday school as I seen it then. Um, but my brother continued to go. And really, that's how I got saved or put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He went every week, every, every week for a year. He was getting a special prize because he was getting the prize for being there every week for a year. And my mum, she went to bingo on a Wednesday night. So no one was there in the family to, to go and see him get his prize. And he really wanted someone to go. So I went along to the Gospel Hall again just to see him get his prize. And uh, I got uh, talking to some Christians in the assembly, a couple called Marty and Teeny. I'm sure they won't mind me mentioning their names. They were a real big influence in my early Christian days. And they said that they had a youth work that they did on a Sunday night after the Gospel meeting. And they said that I want to go along. By this stage of my life, I was 13 and I was just doing your normal teenage things, like hanging about the streets in the evenings and Friday evenings, Saturday evenings. It's partial to the old drinking behind the bus shelter. Not afraid to say that by the age of 10, I was smoking cannabis quite regularly. Um, that was just the council estate I grew up on. There was a lot of drugs. There was a lot of drink. So my lifestyle wasn't that great for a 13-year-old, um, and I was a bit of a tearaway. Although in school, I behaved quite well, so I was quite proud of that. And I went along to this youth meeting, and the first thing that struck me was, these people are really happy, and they do not do the things that I do. And it stuck with me, and it always, I can still remember, there was one guy called David Dooley, and... Uh, he was just so happy all the time. And to be honest, it annoyed me because they were so happy all <laughs> the time. And I just couldn't couldn't get my head around it. But I kept going to the youth meetings and uh, there was uh, they went away for the weekend, just up the coast to White Rocks, White Park Bay. And it was going to be like a weekend of gospel and Bible teaching. It was £45 for the weekend. And they said, do you want to come? And I was like, oh, I don't know. So I talked to my mum and she said, no, we can't afford it. You're not going away with the church for 45 pounds. Like, why would you do that? But then the Marty and Tini came around the assembly, which I didn't know at the time. She just came around one night and she was like, oh, your first, your first, uh, your first trip's free. <laughs> I was like, great, I'll go, it's free, I'll be going. Not knowing to me that someone would actually pay for me to go. So I went on this weekend and I remember just, I remember someone asking me on the weekend, are you a Christian? 
And I said, yes. And they said, what makes you a Christian? And I said, oh, well, I come to this. I come to this. And they sat down with me and they said, you know, that does not make you a Christian. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and knowing him as your saviour, believing that he died on the cross for your sins, that's what makes you a Christian. Mm. And I was like, oh, right. Oh, well, um, I don't think I am a Christian then. So they gave me a Bible and I started reading it. I wish I'd asked for advice because I read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all in that week, like the week after the, the event, and I didn't understand anything that I read. <laughs> and I remember going to Teeny afterwards and saying, I didn't really understand the Bible. It makes no sense to me. It's all about these rules, about leprosy and everything else. And she was like, oh, no, 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 you, you should start the New Testament. I didn't really understand what the Old and New Testament were. So I continued to go to the youth meetings and then before the youth meetings there was a gospel meeting. So then I was invited to come to the gospel meeting before the youth meetings. So I started going to the gospel meetings probably for about three months I'd say. And one night a guy spoke on John chapter 10. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And something just clicked. I can't explain it, but I knew at that moment that Christ had died for me and me personally. I went home that night and I knew that I needed to be saved. And I was on my bed. It was probably about 11 o'clock at night. And I just cried out to the Lord, Lord, please save me. I know I've done wrong in my life and I want you to come in and, you know, be with me and helped me through this journey in, in, in life. And uh, so that's how I got saved. That's brilliant. Yeah. How did the news go down at home? I didn't really tell anyone at the start. I didn't know I had to tell anyone. So I didn't tell anyone, but my behaviour certainly changed. And I started going to all the meetings, like apart from the morning meeting, I started going to all the meetings at the church. And I started to hang about with the people. So I kind of lost a few friends, but gained a whole lot of new ones. Um, so I'd go to Bible studies. I'd go to outings that they were having and go on the Sunday. I'd be out all day Sunday, basically. Yeah, so I think people noticed the change. I didn't really tell my parents that I'd become a Christian or anything, but they definitely saw a change in me and... I think they were pleased, you know. I remember I asked for baptism probably 18 months after I got saved and I didn't tell my parents that I had asked for baptism. And then the elders said to me, are your parents coming to your baptism on Sunday? This was like on the Thursday. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I haven't told them. <laughs> and they were like, well, you're 15, 16 now. So, um, we think you need to tell your parents before we baptise you. So they actually, the elders went round and explained what had happened. And I told my parents how I'd become saved and how I wanted to be baptised. And they were really, they were a bit confused, but they accepted that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. And they were very encouraging. And they came to my baptism, which was, which was great. So. Excellent. Yeah. A bit of a glimpse behind the curtain in our conversation before we did the podcast. Uh, you mentioned that you also gave up drinking and smoking weed at the time. So 
you know, it's important to mention that bit. Yeah, yeah. So there was it wasn't it wasn't e- well it wasn't easy. I wouldn't say like I smoked it regularly when I was thirteen, you know, but it was like every couple of weeks. So it wasn't like I was addicted or anything like that. But it was just recreational, something that you did with your friends. It was hard to get away from that because it was just all over the estate and with my friendship circles that I was in at the time so it was difficult to let go of those things but I did take my stand when I was 14 and say that I don't do those things anymore. Did you find that you had a good support network within the the assembly in the church because if you've got an unsaved family and unsaved friends and from an estate which there's lots going on which is a distraction is there a huge pull to take you away from your Christian faith at that early age? There was, there definitely was, um, but I had such good support from the assembly in Whitehead. Again, special mention to Marty and Teeny, and to a lady called Joyce who really helped me through that time and just encouraged me to keep going. Teeny was also from a similar background to me, so she knew the ins and outs of uh, what was going on and. They would have me round for tea maybe a couple of times a week. They would just um, give me like Christian music and give me verses to encourage me. And yeah, so there was there was good support there. I think it's important to know there's Christian hospitality involved because I think it's a huge work, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. So age 17, there was going to be a dramatic change in your family unit. Perhaps yeah. you could explain what happened. So it was a Friday night and I was around at my friend Hannah's house. Um, she only lived five minutes up the road. She was a Christian at the time as well. Well, she still is, <laughs> not at the time. But <laughs> she, uh, she was a Christian and I was uh, hanging about with her. And I remember it very clearly. And I went home and I saw the door open and I wondered what's going on. Now, my first reaction was like, oh, no, mum and dad are having an argument again. And I thought, oh, no, this is what's happening. I walked in the door and my dad was um, in the bathroom and he was in a lot of pain. And my mum was there too, but both of them had been drinking quite heavily. And my mum, rest her soul, you know, she wasn't in a fit state to do anything so I called an ambulance and the ambulance came they got my dad into the ambulance and they said does anyone want to come and I said I'd come and so I was in the ambulance and I was talking to my dad I was talking to the man in the ambulance and I was saying that I wanted to be a paramedic when I grew up and all of a sudden the, the man said can we pull over please we need to resuscitate and this was now half one in the morning in a dark country lane in Northern Ireland and they pulled over and they started to resuscitate my dad so I got out of the ambulance and they said you don't want to see this get out of the ambulance so I was standing in a country lane at half one in the morning yeah unfortunately they weren't able to resuscitate my father and he passed away in the ambulance um, on the 13th of October 
that was a very traumatic time for me and a very difficult time. There were things that happened that night that I believe that I've talked to you about before that I believe mm. that the Lord was in it and that's how I got through it. For example, earlier on that night, my phone had died. It was just a Nokia 3310 at that stage <laughs> and it had died long ago. And I was on that country lane at half one in the morning and I had no one to call. And the ambulance, I was, I was there for at least an hour didn't know what to do so I just cried out to the Lord I said Lord help me let me call someone some people don't believe that miracles like this can happen but my phone switched on and I had 30% battery and I was able to phone Hannah who round at her house her nurse her sister's a nurse Sarah okay and so I phoned Hannah and I said Hannah you're to get your sister my dad's in an ambulance and I don't think he's breathing and they came up and they found me on the country lane and uh, they took me home. They took me home and uh, I had to wake my mum up because she was sleeping. And I had to tell her that her husband had passed away, which uh, for a 17 year old to have to tell your own mother that, you know, your father had passed away was a very, very difficult thing to do. And I didn't do anything else, but I ran to my room and I was crying. And I just, again, I wouldn't encourage anyone to do this, but I just cried to the Lord. I said, Lord, I'm going to open the Bible and I want you to tell me why you've done this. I opened up Proverbs chapter 16 and I read the whole chapter and I thought, I'm not getting anything out of this. This is rubbish. But the very last verse um, said, and I had a new King James Bible at the at the time and it said the lot is cast into the lap but every decision is from the Lord and that verse I cling I clung to and I still cling to this day that that what happened to my dad however traumatic however terrible it was it was a decision that the Lord had made and there was nothing that I could do about it that's my hope that there's a reason for it this question might be better suited later on in your story, but I'll ask it now anyway. Was there ever any hostility towards God at this first kind of major event in your life? From me or from... Both, from you or, or your mum? There wasn't at the start. I think I was in shock. But the more the time passed on, the more I became angry at God for what he had done because the change in our family dynamic was incredible you know my mum who was a housemaker had to look for work and try and support two young children you know there was a there was a lot of questioning for me and for a period of about eight months I stopped going to the meetings okay I just couldn't couldn't face going there I couldn't sing the hymns I couldn't read my bible it was a very difficult and challenging time. But again, the Christians in the assembly, they supported me all the way through it. And even though I wasn't going, I was still having phone calls from them. I was still getting text messages every day from them saying, we're praying for you. You know, do you want to come down for tea? Do you want to meet up in the park? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? They weren't willing to let me go. And I think there's a lot of 
times in churches or assemblies that someone maybe goes uh, goes astray and we just let them uh, we should be what would you say we should be clinging to them and we should be trying to bring them back encouraging them to go on in spiritual things so i'm very grateful for the support that i had from the assembly in whitehead at age 15 you started with some mental health issues how did they come about well when i was 15 i wasn't really didn't know what mental health was mm-hmm. but i can look back now and think yeah that definitely was an issue so i still remember from this from being about 15 just being very sad and not being a very happy child i don't know if it was anything to do with the previous issues that i've discussed around alcohol in the home and domestic violence and drugs being around and everything like that but I wasn't a very happy child I did cover it up well and um, when I was 15 I still remember being thinking questioning about what's the purpose in life even though I was saved I was definitely saved but you know definitely had these thoughts of you know um you know like what's after life and stuff and, yeah, so I started having these thoughts when I was 18, just before my A-levels. I actually took an overdose because I was that unhappy. You know, everything that had happened with my dad, I took an overdose and was in hospital for a few days. So that really started the ball rolling with me being diagnosed with depression. Mm-hmm. And I was put on medication for that. But... Um, as the time went by, I would start to get these periods of elation and people don't really understand what that is. People understand depression very well these days, but people don't understand what a manic episode is. And I would start to get these feelings of restlessness and inc- like you can't explain how much um, elation you have and it would caused me to become erratic. Uh, I would be off doing things and doing this and doing that and having all these wonderful ideas but not being able to contain them and just being up all night. So one of the biggest side effects that I have when I'm elated is that I don't sleep at all. So I can go five, six days without having a wink of sleep. Um, maybe, Maybe one or two hours, but I just keep going and keep going and I just have all these ideas and um yeah you can't calm down it's just you're just full of energy um so I started getting those when I was probably about 21 when I remember when I was at university having one of my first episodes like that and so the pattern just continued um throughout my 20s I'd have periods of being down and I'd have periods of being up and there'd be a couple of months of stability in between. So that's really how the mental health kind of side started off. So these peaks and troughs aren't daily or hourly. This is, you know, maybe a peak of manic joy. And then you'll kind of come back to some normality and then you dip to a depression later on. Yeah. Yeah. So it really is um, 
it varies really so sometimes i can go straight from a manic episode straight down so it's like going from not to 60 and 60 to not in like five like two weeks so manic episodes tend to last one to three weeks okay but depressive episodes can last from anything from one to six months okay um it's it's very difficult especially if you don't have that stability in the middle you just go from one to the other and it can be very debilitating i've had to take periods of long periods of time off sick from work because i can't work when i'm like that so i'm very grateful that i have a very supportive working environment and very supportive colleagues as well who understand yeah so i guess there's a bit of a vicious circle in that yeah, manic episode probably start off start you off on your depressive route, and yeah. vice versa. You know, if you're not sleeping for five six days in a row, and then suddenly you have that come down, yeah, it maybe sends you into the de- de- the depressive stage. Yeah, yeah. So I'll just give you an example for um. So during a manic episode, I had idea that I would cycle around Lake Garda and I would camp at the various points. I'd just been to Lake Garda a couple of months before and I loved it on holiday with friends. Planning out your route. (laughs) I'd uh, like spied it out then, but uh, I couldn't get it out of my head. And then I went into this manic episode and I was like, I'm going to cycle around Lake Garda. Now, if you look at me right now, I couldn't cycle to the Tesco's 10 minutes up the road. (laughs) (laughs) you know but um this was my idea and i went out and i online shopped and i bought a tent bought a tranja i bought a bicycle i bought my fleeing tickets and uh i didn't buy plane tickets i bought boat tickets because i was going to cycle through france first um and get to italy and cycle around lake garda it was going to be a big adventure but Eventually, so I spend all this money, which is another side effect of being manic, you know, you tend to overspend and have grand ideas, you know, I've spent loads of money on different items while I've been manic, I've taken out bank loans, I've booked holidays and never went on them because then I've become too sick to go on them, Um, so it is quite debilitating, can be funny, you know, just people, but in the reality of it, it's quite debilitating. So at this point in time, you had never been diagnosed with anything, had you? No, so it takes about, on average, according to the NHS website, it takes about 10 years from first symptoms to be diagnosed with bipolar disorder. I was quite fortunate. It only took eight years. I know it's still long, but I'm very fortunate. So I was diagnosed when I was 29. Okay. By that stage, I had been in many manic and depressive episodes and I was getting support from the age of 26. I went into a team called the Early Intervention Team, which is a team that specialises in, so when I become manic, I lose sense of all reality. I have hallucinations. I have visual hallucinations and audio hallucinations. Last time I was in hospital, which wasn't that long ago, I believed that there was Russian spies after me, and I could see them. And I could hear them. They can be quite frightening as well. But I was very fortunate at 29 to get my bipolar diagnosis and get the treatment that I need. I'm very thankful to the Lord for that. 
Mm. Before we get to that, you moved to Liverpool to do one of the more unusual courses I've ever heard of. <laughs> you decided to do childhood and youth studies with religion and theology. Yeah. So what was the thinking behind that course? Well, I had applied for Strand Millis, if you've heard of it, which is a teaching college in Northern Ireland, but I didn't get in. So this was going to be my route to teaching. So I was going to do the childhood and youth studies with religion and theology to become an RE teacher in a secondary school. So I was going to do my PGCE after I'd done that degree. But when I got to my third year of studying, I decided that teaching wasn't for me in the end. Um, too stressful. don't think I could teach the, uh, the youth of today. So. <laughs> At university you had two major incidents. Perhaps you could just go into those. Yeah, so I had uh, a manic episode, um, which was followed straight away by a depressive episode. During that manic episode, I just went completely off the rails um, and got involved. Like, it was only for two weeks, but I kind of just started to do the things that I did when I was a teenager and I had never done that previously but it was just the the way that the episode went and then I felt so guilty that I had done that and I had disobeyed the Lord and that brought me into to, to a depressive episode. Now that depressive episode was probably bar one the worst episode that I've ever had and I was not fit for purpose. Um, I couldn't do anything for myself. I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink. I couldn't sleep properly. Um, I couldn't wash myself. I couldn't get dressed. I was just in bed. And, you know, I was a student. I was meant to be going to lectures. I wasn't going to lectures. Um, I was just completely paralysed. And I started to self-harm at this time as well um but i have to say uh, coming to liverpool was the best decision i ever did i met i've met so many lovely people and the assemblies in liverpool are so supportive mm. and again what i had in whitehead i had double the amount in liverpool i had the support and the encouragement from so many people during that depressive episode, the saints could see that I was struggling very, very, very much. Um, so they, one couple in the meeting, I'll not name them because they wouldn't want to be named. They're, they're rewards in heaven. But they took me in and they took me in for four months. And they looked after me. They fed me. They encouraged me. They prayed with me. They read with me. They would, <laughs> against my will, would lock me into the study and go, You've got to do your dissertation. Um, we're giving you two hours and you would want at least 500 words, you know, just to get me through my degree. Because I would I would have dropped out. I would have went home. But they knew that that wasn't the right environment that I needed to be in at the time. They knew that I needed to be in an environment where God was honoured and that's the support that I received. And you were saying earlier, Dan, about hospitality and 
the saints in the New Testament, you know, they were together as one. And that's what I found from the saints in Liverpool. They were together with me and they lifted me up when I was completely down and had to be at one point hospitalised because I was just so, so depressed. And they came and visited me in hospital. They prayed with me and they encouraged me. And uh, just all that practical support is maybe underrated at times. Without that practical support, I knew that I wouldn't be here. So at this stage, you were sectioned. Perhaps you could go into what that's like as an experience. Okay, so I'm not going to sit here and say it's all roses because being sectioned is not nice. It's a terrible feeling. But at the time when I was sectioned, there was no other help available and I was a danger to myself. Um, so it was the only route that we could go down. There's three different types of sections that you can be sectioned under. A section one, which is for 72 hours. A section two, which is for 28 days. And a section three, which can last up to six months. Um, and you can go from one to the other. Um, so if you're on a section one and after 72 hours, they're not, you don't see an improvement, then you can be moved to a section two. And vice, like so for like section two, you can be moved to section three and so forth and so on. Um, so the hospital environment is not pleasant. There's a lot of sick people there and probably a lot sicker than me when I was there. So that was difficult. There's a lot of noise, a lot of screaming and people are very distressed and it can be very upsetting. It just depends on what hospital you get. I was very fortunate to get a brand new hospital when I was sectioned. It only just opened six months previous. So it was state-of-the-art facilities. And there is a lot of help that you can get there. And really, if I hadn't been sectioned, I wouldn't have got the help and support that I got when I left hospital. Because I had been in hospital, then they have to step you up. And your care improves, I think, personally. But I'll not say that the insection is nice at all. It's a really horrible experience. And it's happened on more than one occasion. The second time when it took place, it led to erratic and unwanted behaviours. It did lead to you finally getting a diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah, so the second time I was sectioned is when I started hallucinating again but this time it was in work so I was sitting in the office and all of a sudden I dived under the desk and everyone in the office was like what does she do <laughs> I was like get down everyone get down everyone there's someone with a gun and they were like there's no one here with a gun and I was like there is there is lock the doors lock the doors I thought there was a gunman in the office um so very carefully and very um, very fortunate to work with occupational therapists um, who have training in this kind of sphere. So they were able to calm me down and they phoned my... So I have what is known as a CPN, which is a community psychiatric nurse. 
and she comes to visit me once a week just to check and see who I, how I am. So they phoned my CPN and said, Carrie's in the office and she's off her head. Uh, <laughs> can you come down? Basically, and she rushed down and she was able to calm me down. Um, but I had to go to any and again, then I was sectioned only for 72 hours at that time, although I did stay in for an extra week voluntarily. So you can stay voluntary afterwards, but that means you can discharge yourself. Okay. So whereas if you're on a section two, you can't discharge yourself. So I discharged myself after a week, even though I still wasn't that well. But there was after that, I kind of got my diagnosis of being bipolar, which was a relief to know because at this point I'd been seeing psychiatrists, I'd seen doctors, I'd had CPNs and none of them could give me an answer of why my behaviour was so erratic and so up and down and the word bipolar was batted around for years, for years and but no one ever made a diagnosis and so I wasn't able to get the right medication or the right support so once I got that diagnosis, then things started to to change. Yeah. So how has your Christian faith impacted both when you're in a manic state and in a depressive state? How has it impacted and how did it help? It does impact because when you're manic, you don't think of anything but yourself. And that's not what God wants. So I have to put my hands up and say, when I'm manic, God doesn't really get a look in as much as he should. And that's difficult. And then I have terrible guilt afterwards um, that I didn't look to him. Although recently, um, and only very recently, probably over the last year, I've started to ask God when I'm manic, can he please help me? Because when you're manic, you don't want help. <laughs> you're too happy. You're too joyful. You're too you're too elated. You're kind of thinking, oh, the world's my oyster. I can do anything I want, which is not the case. It's only in the last year that I've really made a firm choice and decision to look to God in those situations and ask him for his help, not only to calm me down, but to, to help me read his word and to pray to him. But when I'm depressed, again, I can take my eyes off him. One of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast was because things are hard when you have mental health problems and there are people out there that are struggling thinking that they're terrible Christians because they're taking their eyes off the Lord because they're depressed or because they have manic episodes or they have schizophrenia. And I just wanted to reassure them that they're not alone, but God's with them and that God can help them in their troubles. Yeah, thanks for that, Kerry. I know that part of the reason behind you stepping out of your comfort zone to do the interview is to, to share that honest truth. Yeah, definitely. Having been diagnosed with bipolar, how is it that it is treated? Mostly my treatment is through medication so i take four tablets a day mood stabilizers antipsychotics and antidepressants and they help me to stay stable now there's been a time in my life where i didn't want to take tablets 
because of the stigma around it. And again, it's only in the last couple of years that I've realised that there's no shame. There's no shame in asking for help and there's no shame in asking to be medicated for a mental health issue. I thought when I was 25, I'm a Christian, God can help me. And that's true. God can help you. But you wouldn't say to a diabetic not to take insulin. And it's the same for mental health problems. If there is ways you can treat mental health problems without taking tablets, but if it is a diagnosable illness, such as bipolar, such Mm. as schizophrenia, it's a chemical imbalance in your brain and it needs to be treated through medication. My good friend, I'll not name her, but she tells she tells me, uh, she asks me every every couple of weeks, you know, are you taking your tablets? Because they know the consequences of me coming off my tablets and there has been there has been problems where I've felt well for a while and thought I don't need my tablets anymore and I've come off the tablets and you can guarantee in four weeks to five weeks time I'll be sky high again or I'll be right down in the depths of depression again. Yeah medication is not to be frowned upon and not to be judged. It's for everyone individually to make their own decision whether they think it's best for them or not. Perhaps is a good time to ask is there any advice you would give to people who are perhaps starting out their journey with mental health as a Christian? And then secondly, what advice would you give to people who want to help Christians who are going through mental health issues? I think the first the first thing to do is admit to yourself that you have a mental health issue. It might not be major, but it might be major. It might be that you just feel a bit sad, but that can, that can lead to a more deeper depression and the earlier you catch it the more you can be treated so I'd say that's the first thing is to admit to yourself whether you have a mental health problem I'd say the, the most important thing as a Christian is to take it to the Lord and to pray about it and to read his word seek advice from fellow Christians if you can I know it's not easy and I've talked about how great the assemblies that I've gone to have been and supportive. I know that that's not the case everywhere and I know that there's there's people that are in assemblies and they're, they're hiding their problems because they don't want to um, admit to someone and be judged because they feel like they're going to be judged. So I'd say if you can talk to someone it's always good to have a friend that you can pray with, that you can that can encourage you. I wouldn't have got through any of my problems if I hadn't have said to some people, some of the like the elder in my assembly, I'm really struggling here. I don't think I can go on. So I'd say taking it to the Lord first and talking to fellow believers that you trust and you know will help and encourage you. Thirdly, I'd say go to your doctor if you're struggling. There are counselling. I know that some people don't agree with counselling just because that they have a worldly approach. But there are good Christian counsellors out there as well. 
and you can do your research and you can find good Christian counsellors that will not tell you to do things that are contrary to the word of God. I've been to counselling a couple of times you know, with the trauma with my dad and stuff. I, I had to, you know, I couldn't keep it to, to myself. I couldn't bottle it up. I needed to talk about it and get help for it because really I had PTSD from watching your dad being resuscitated at 17, you know, and I had flashbacks and I had everything to do with that and it was hard and I needed to talk to someone about it and someone impartial, someone that won't judge you. So I'd say there are talking therapies out there and your doctor can also prescribe medication if he feels it's needed. So that's my advice for anyone that's going through mental health issues at the moment. My advice for people who are trying to support people is to do all the things that I've said that I was supported by. You can pray with people, that's great. You can read with people, that's great. You know, I'm not saying that those things are bad at all. They're great. But um, the practical support, it really is needed when it comes to helping someone with mental health problems. So, for example, I recently was hospitalised again and my house was a mess. I didn't wash a dish for about three weeks. I didn't make my bed. I didn't tidy up at all. And while I was in hospital, two of the saints came around to my house and cleaned it top to bottom, washed all my clothes, washed all my dishes, cleaned my bathroom, changed my bed. So when I got out of hospital, I didn't have to do a thing. I came home to a clean house. There were saints that made me food because I couldn't cook for myself. Um, there were saints that just sent me cards. I just picked up the phone and sent a verse and a text message. You know, there's there's things that I am forever grateful for. And they're small things. They're the little things, but they make so much difference. So I'd say the spiritual side is really important, but the practical side is just as important when someone's going through mental health problems. Yeah. Just to say at this point, if anyone is going through any difficulties themselves and they want to get in touch just kind of confidentially, you can always drop us a message on the testimony Instagram, Facebook, or you can email at testimonypodcast at outlook.com. So you're welcome to do that just to get some prayer support and just sometimes sharing a problem with someone possibly gives a little bit of relief, Kerry. Would that be right? Yeah, definitely. Um, and again, if anyone wants to get in contact with me, I'm happy to help. I'll make a little plug for myself. I've just started a Instagram account called Elijah's Ravens, which is a Instagram account that is dealing with mental health problems. It's all based on Elijah, as we know Elijah suffered from depression. He asked the Lord to take his life at one point. He was that depressed. And the Lord sent ravens to feed him and to give him and he asked the Lord give him rest and took him beside the brook Cherith and uh, the ravens came with food and the Lord let him rest. So that's the where the the name Elijah's Ravens came from and I'm happy for people to DM me and ask me questions 
I don't, I'm not guaranteeing I know all the answers, but I'm happy for people to get in contact. We've got one last major thing to deal with in the interview tonight. Yeah, so at 12 minutes past eight on Wednesday, the 2nd of February, I got a call from my sister and I never get a call from my sister. <laughs> um, and in that instance, I knew something was wrong. I answered the phone and I said, hello. She said, hi, Kerry, I've got something to tell you. And I said, what is it? And she says, mum's passed away. And uh, it was just a total shock. Now, my mum was in hospital with a chest infection. Um, she was getting antibiotics, but we just thought she was getting antibiotics and that she would be fine. But she took sepsis very suddenly and uh, she passed away very quickly on the 2nd of February in the early hours of the morning. It was a devastating phone call that I'll never forget. Yeah. Yeah, and it was complicated by being, it was complicated with travel restrictions due to COVID as well. Yeah, so um, two days previously on the Monday, I was, I was actually meant to, so the, the Lord's hand was in it really. So on that Wednesday that my mum passed away, I was due to fly to Iceland on a holiday that I booked while I was manic. <laughs> but we'll go into that. So I did a fit the fly test on the Monday um, and it come back positive for COVID. When my mum passed away, I couldn't fly home for another six days until I got cleared from COVID. So I was isolating. I couldn't see any of the saints. I couldn't see any of my friends. Well, I say that, but... Um, they turned up at the window and they passed in cards and food and just comfort for me. But it was a very difficult time and I really questioned why I had COVID at, this, at that time. But I think the Lord knew that I needed time by myself, looking back on it now. But at the time I was like beside myself that I couldn't go home and see her. Yeah. Moving forward, what are your hopes as far as dealing with bipolar? What are, what are you hoping the Lord can do for you? Well, I've recently been reading, I think it's in Timothy. I don't know if it's first or second Timothy. It might not be, but I know that's where I've been reading, where it says to live a quiet and peaceable life. <laughs> and that's really my hope. I don't want any more dramas in my life. I just want to live a quiet life and live for him and do what he wants me to do in the assembly and all around about. I don't want to be famous or any of those things. I just, my hope is that I'll be able to live my life with less episodes because at the moment the episodes come a couple of times a year, but I know that it's possible to go years without episodes. And that's really my hope is that I'll get to the point where the medication and the therapies that I receive will be enough that I can hold off bipolar for it affecting my work life and affecting my uh, home life and my assembly life and that I'll be able to 
just live for him and give him the glory, but do it in a quiet and peaceful way. And uh, normally we finish by asking if there is a particular verse or verses that you found most helpful. Now, you've said a few throughout the podcast. Do you have a different one? Yeah, I've actually got one, two, three, four, five, six. <laughs> Go for it. Thanks, verses that I thought about when I... Oh, no, I don't. I've already said that one, so that's all right. So uh, the first one that really speaks to me, and if anyone asks me what's your favourite verse in the Bible... I'd probably say Psalm 23, verse 3, which is, he restoreth my soul. And there's been times in my life where I've let the Lord down, excel. And whether that's because of the bipolar or because of my lack of faith, but he's an all-forgiving God. As far as the east is from the west, so as far as he removed my transgressions, and I cling to that, and he has restored my soul on multiple occasions where I've let him down and I've clinged to that verse that he restoreth my soul and he gives me peace. The second verse is Matthew chapter 11 verse 28. Come on to me all ye that labour and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. You know the Lord gives rest to the, the weary and the heavy laden. Maybe there's someone listening that is going through a very terrible and dark time and they don't have any rest in their their mind. The Lord can give rest to those that seek him. And so I just encourage anyone that's going through anything like that to just come to him and to ask him for rest. In Second Timothy chapter one, verse seven, for God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and my favourite bit and of a sound mind. There's times in my experience where I've not had a sound mind, and I love this verse because the Lord can do everything and anything, and he can give me a sound mind. And so I think that's another favorite verse of mine. Then Genesis 18, verse 14. Now this is in relation to Sarah and Abraham, but the verse says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer is no. Whatever circumstances they're going through, there is nothing too hard for the Lord to, to, to help you, to get you through. He is able. Hmm. He is able. And then finally, Lamentations 3, verse 23. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good unto him, to the soul that seeketh after him. The faithfulness of the Lord. I can't comprehend it, Dan. I, I, I don't know why he doesn't discard me because of the things that I've done. Um, but he's faithful and no one can pluck me from his hand. Mm. And, uh, yeah. I just wanted to say, um, there's been times where I've been so depressed or manic that I can't read and I can't pray. But what I can do is listen to songs. I didn't know if anyone would be interested, but I do have a playlist, which I can share, that has hymns and songs on it that really help me when I'm feeling depressed and 
you know, they they have scripture in them, and that just listening to the songs can help just cheer the soul. But there's a one hymn that I only recently discovered, probably only in the last six months that I've discovered this hymn, and it's in the it's in the hymn book, but I never really sung it before. And it was when a a lady gave it out um like a, a home we were singing in a someone's home and the lady gave it out. It says, He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labours increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiply trials, he multiplies peace. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary, known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Thank you, Kerry. What a lovely note to end on. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming on Testimony Podcast. I know it's not been an easy thing for you to share your story, but I'm sure there'll be many people who will be helped by listening along. Well, thanks for having me, Dad. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Testimony. If you have any suggestions as to who would make a good interview, then please get in touch at testimonypodcast at outlook.com or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you.